So as I said, we're going to be continuing our series through 1 Timothy tonight. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Um, and I did, just before we start, I meant to say this, I did get a notification that apparently George Clooney is inviting me to a private dinner. So, pretty important guy, obviously. Um, but let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Um, or 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Um, again, this is really this passage uh, and um, the chapter 5 is passages like these are all throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And it's one of the main reasons we call them the pastoral epistles because this is sort of Paul's, uh, his own monograph, his, his structure for how the church is to be run, right? The Lord Jesus speaking through Paul on how to run a church. Um, and he really starts here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So. Here's God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Excuse me. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the joy to come together and to uh, hear your word and to pray and lift up our requests to get to you, our Heavenly Father. I do ask that you would be with us, that you would guide uh, my mouth, my, my heart, my mind as I seek to um, show them what you would have for the leaders of your church and the, the qualifications that you have given for uh, those men to, to preside over your church until your son returns again. Jesus, even as we uh, look at these qualifications. We thank you that you are our one true shepherd and that our ultimate hope is uh, seeing you descend in the clouds in glory and uh, coming back to, uh, to be with us and to be with us forever. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So uh, I remember the context of this, of what Paul is writing in First Timothy. He's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, a whole lot of shenanigans going on up there. Um, False teachers are wreaking havoc. Um, It seems like the church is sort of going to pot. Timothy is a young guy. uh, And as Paul is counseling Timothy, one of the main things he gives is how to establish leaders in a church. Right? This was a normal practice of Paul. In fact, if you read um, Acts 13, Acts 16, Acts uh, 20, Right, he, he's setting up elders as a normal part of how Paul operates in church plant. He goes to a town, he's there for a year, maybe three, and then he brings up elders to, to rule over the church. 
Uh, it's almost, if you remember in Exodus, right, Moses is the one dude, and he's like hearing every case that all, you know, 1.5 million Israelites have, and Jethro, his father-in-law, is like, you're going to kill yourself, man. Like, here's what you've got to do. Like, make leaders over tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, and then you just hear the big stuff, but have, you know, give men to do the work of leading the people. In much the same way, right, Christ has given, Ephesians 4 tells us that Christ has given men to lead the church, right? Men to, to preside over the church in his stead. Um, and some people, right, some more critical scholars uh, look at this and say, well, obviously this isn't really Paul writing because, right, Paul was all about gifts, right? They would, he would say that elders for Paul was a charismatic ministry. So there'd be some really charismatic men who just sort of, made their way to the top, and those were the natural leaders of the church. And here we just have this sort of rigid, top-down structure that's just kind of cold and lifeless, and that's not really what the church was supposed to be. Um, But the thing that they're missing, right, is that this handoff between Paul and Timothy is not only the handoff between an apostle to his assistant, but it's the handoff between all the apostles to the next generation, right? That as the apostles are dying out, right, that the, the Christ is giving a blueprint, uh, uh, schematics for how the church is to be run as the apostles die off, right? So we're sort of entering, we're shifting into a new uh, historical horizon, right? Where the immediate representatives of Christ, the immediate representatives of Christ and the apostles are no longer with the church. So how, do, how does the church run without apostles, Right? And this, it's, it requires some sort of schematic. It requires some sort of structure. Right? So uh, there's still denominations today that, that hate this. Right? And Plymouth Brethren, no offense if you're born in a Plymouth Brethren <laughs> church at all. They're good people. Um, actually started by good old, uh, darn it, Darby. Um, that's, started by Darby. Um, he was a Plymouth Brethren and also dispensational. Um, so, um, but he, you know, Plymouth Brethren, they don't believe there's any office, like any man can just get up and talk. The, the services are sort of just, you know, led by the Spirit. Um, and then there, on the other side, there are churches that are ultra, um, you know, top-down structure. We'll, we'll talk about those in just a, a little bit. But just as we're thinking, right, one of the things that Christ is building is a city, one of the, 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 the end of time, we see Revelation, a new city being born up out of the church. Uh, and just like any city, the heavenly city, even the emissary of the heavenly city of the church, like, right, requires structure. It re- requires governance. Uh, as you know, one of my, my polity professor always said, that every church has a polity. It's just a matter of do people know what it is and does it make sense? Right? You're always, every church can have a polity. Every church can have a structure. The question is, does it make sense? And Paul is here giving a, a structure, a polity, given from Christ himself. Um, and we see, well, I'll talk about this later, but uh, especially for church members, right? As far as, as far as you are church members, members of Grace PCA, these 13 verses are some of the most important verses for you. Right? as a church member. And it's because you, as a member, have, a, have certain rights. And one of those rights are you elect leaders. Right? You vote for men to be elders and deacons. 
And it's, this, these verses are so important for you because you have to know the proper qualifications for those men that you're voting on, that you're, bring, that you're nominating, right? That God is giving us a, a, a sheet of here's what to look for. Now you go and raise up leaders, right? It's, it's not my job to say, you know, I, I don't really like Andre, so he's off session, but I, I really like Rod. He's pretty cool. <laughs> Um, Paul helped me buy a house, so if I get him on the session, maybe he'll like help me get a bigger house for less money, um, right? It's not me making the, the the leadership of the church, right? It's it's the congregation coming together and saying these are the men that we have for leader. Just a quick example of this, right? In in Acts, we see the, one of the first things we see in Acts after the Lord ascends is the uh, 11 disciples left over after Judas has killed himself, is they're recognizing, hey, we need one more. Right? We, need, we need another guy. And they, they, they recognize they need someone else to take his office. And listen to how they talk, right? They've got the brothers, which is about 120 members of the church at the time. And it says, so one of the men, so, uh, the, and this is the, the guidelines, right? This is Peter talking to these men, the brothers, the 120 men, the church he says, these are the guidelines right, for this new apostle. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the times the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he's taken up from, from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So he, Paul, Peter tells the brothers, 120 members of the church, here's the qualifications. Now you go and find this man, right? And because it says, and they, the brothers, put forward two. Right? So the brothers, it's the church that, hey, P- Peter gave us the qualifications. Now we go and find the men that match that. In much the same way, right? Paul is giving us the qualifications. Here's what it means to be an elder. Now, church, pay attention, right? Because this is, this is your job, right? Um, now I'm going to, that, that bleeds into a whole other conversation of what it means to be a church member and the importance of that. But if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk more. Um, but all that to say, right? This, these 13 verses are crucial for us as church members as we elect and follow church leaders, right? I mean, the damage that has been done by improper election of leaders, right, is probably every major church crisis can be brought back to, you know, someone was an elder or a pastor that shouldn't have been. And so it's crucial for each of us to pay attention to, to hear what Paul is saying in these qualifications, um, so let's just, let's just dive in. We're just going to work through this, right? We're going to work through uh, what Paul presents as these qualifications for the office of elder and deacon. And you'll notice I'm saying elder, right? Because in one says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And that word overseer, right? It's the Greek word episkopos. If you were, you probably hear the, just even the sounding episcopalian, right? Um, another word to translate would be bishop. And so you have some people who read this as saying Paul is giving us three offices, right? So you've got deacon, you've got elder, and then you've got the big top dog named a bishop, right? And the bishop is kind of the number one. So if you're in my Augustine class right now, you know, Augustine was the bishop of Hippo. He was sort of the, the, the chief pastor, right, in all, of, in all of Hippo. But, you know, Presbyterians and many others see both elder presbyteros and overseer episkopos as one in the same office right that they're the same thing just getting at two different sides so um really the the two biggest clues of this is that this 
this rubric in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 is repeated almost verbatim, at least conceptually verbatim, in Titus 1, 5 through 9. But instead of calling them overseers, he calls them elders, presbyteros. Right? And even in Tim, uh, Titus 1, 5 through 9, Paul simultaneously calls them presbyteros elders and episcopos bishops, one and the same. Right? So it's not two separate offices, you know, contrary to our Anglican Orthodox Catholic brethren, but they're, they're, they're one of the same office. And we could say episkopos, the idea of an overseer, it's getting at the function of what this person does, right? He, over, he provides oversight. While an elder, the term elder, presbyteros, gets at the status, right? The status of the role. Because, you know, an elder was not this new thing, right? Elders had been a part of Jewish life almost from the beginning. We see, you know, even in Proverbs 31, the, the woman, her husband, is an elder who sits by the city gates. Right? So this idea of an elder being someone worthy of respect, generally an older person, right? but not necessarily like, you know, not all of them were necessarily like 65 plus, but someone with experience, wisdom, this, this stature of, of respectability. right? So presbyter, or episcopos, bishop, gets at the function. It provides oversight. Presbyteros, elder, gets at the, the role, the status. Right? He's a He's a man. He's an, a, a man we deem worthy of honor to lead us, right? Um, so, elder presbyteros or elder bishop, same thing, right? Same same office. Um, and notice how he starts. He says, "If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task or a good work." Right? The Greek is kalu ergu. It's a good work. So, it's a good thing that people aspire to. When men aspire to want to be a, 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 an elder in a church, right? It's a that should be commended, right? We shouldn't like, you know, it's not a bad thing, right? Maybe you should be a doctor or something instead of an elder, right? It's a it's it's a good thing to want to be an elder because it's a good work. It's a it's a noble. Some translations have a noble calling, right? Um, but notice that he's not patting men on the back who want to be elders, right? He's not just saying, "Hey, great job." really good on you to want to be an elder. But what he's doing is he's commending the role more than the person, right? Another way of saying it would be, hey, it's great that you want to be an elder, but just understand that the elder is a really, really important role, right? In fact, we would say it's probably the, as far as, as leadership goes, it's one of the essential roles of the church. Right? But it's a good thing, but it's an important work. It's a hard work. Um, and really, we see the, the importance of this role, right? The, the, the nature of this, how key this role is summed up in the first words of verse 2. Look what he says. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Right? Here's, the, here's how central, how important the office of overseer is. Just summing everything up, or just another way of translating, therefore, it is necessary that the overseer be above reproach. It is utmost necessary that this person be above reproach. And most people note that this is sort of the general characteristic. Right? To sum up everything, be above reproach. And then he sort of works through what that means. He gives us, um, he gives us eight positive attributes and then three negative attributes of what that looks like, of what it means to be above reproach. Um, and just to, you know, as, a, as an aside, right, we... PCA has the, their BCO, um, sort of how it help, helps us run the church in an organized manner. 
Um, but all of these, right, all 11 of these are found when you turn to the office of elder, right? We, we have built our job description for the elder on these things, right? So just know, I mean, as, as being members of PCA Church, right, we, we try and structure our government just as Christ himself has given it to us. Um, and the first thing he starts off with, right, and for a spiritual office, for an important office, you know, there's all sorts of things that he could start off with. In fact, there's a couple you would think he would start off with first, but the number one thing he goes to is he's a husband of one wife, right? He's the husband of one wife. And, you know, there's all sorts of debate on what this actually means, but um, seems likely that he's talking about he has been a faithful man to his wife. You know, if a man has been unfaithful in marriage, that's the first and primary disqualifier of him within the church uh, as a leader, right? Not to be a member of the church, but as a leader, if he has fallen into infidelity against his wife, right, that's a, that's a big no-no, right? How, uh, that does, if, if he's divorced, does it follow the biblical precedence for divorce? Um, now, there's all sorts of questions about what about before man was converted, and you know, I'm not going to necessarily get into those. Uh, but Paul is stressing the, the importance it is to, of a faithful husband. I mean, Christ is called the truly faithful husband. He is our spiritual husband. And if the man he's called to lead the church can't be faithful, then they're not really leaders at all. Um, but then he gives us um, kind of more, you know, personal characteristics, right? He's not only the husband of one wife, but he's um, sober-minded, Right? He's got control of what he thinks. And this word, uh, nephalion, right, it generally has to do with just not to literally being sober. Right? You're not a drunkard. But here, because he uses another term later on, it, it's talking about that sober-mindedness, right? that you're, you're clear thinking. You're, you're able to you know, perceive things well. You're not prone to extremes. But you're, you're, you're clear-headed. You're, you're, you're smooth under pressure. Right? And then he goes to another one, right? And he says, uh, sober-minded and then self-controlled. And self-controlled, another way you could translate this is prudent, right? Or just wise, even. It's a pretty big, uh, pretty big topic. The word can have all sorts of meanings. The Greek word is sophrona. Um, and in Greek, Greco-Roman thought and philosophy, this was sort of like the most important virtue, right? So Heraclitus said that uh, Sophrona was the number one, right? If you get out of any virtue, seek to have Sophrona, right? This, this prudence, this sort of balance between all things. Um, Aristotle, um, I think in his Nicomachean Ethics, said that the prudent person, right, the, the Sophrona person, is intent on the what, the how, and the when of doing what should be done, right? So this idea of uh, self-controlled has this idea of um, not just, you know, you're not prone to passions, you know, you, you can't control yourself at an open bar, but, you know, you, you know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it, right? You have this wisdom built into you. Um, and even if you go to, to later Christian thought, right, Augustine will do this, Aquinas will do this, um, it was sort of the chief Christian virtues, right, to pursue this wisdom, this prudence, this self-control. Um, but, Paul is not saying, all right, go learn to be really wise, right? 
go study the philosophers, go study your virtue ethics, and go be really wise. But he's pressing us to this, this gift that only Christ gives, this wisdom that only Christ gives. Um, it said, he, uh, Paul says in Titus 2, right, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly. Right? Or it's, it's the adverb form of what we're seeing here, right? It's sophronos. It's the adverb, living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, right? So this, this thing that Paul is desiring with the elders is the thing that only Christ can give, right? The, the, the wisdom, the prudence that comes from living a life devoted and in Christ. Um, so that's the, right, the, the, the third, and really... You could almost sum up everything with that, that wisdom, that prudence. And even the term elder kind of gets at that, this prudence, this, this wisdom that's learned over age. Um, the fourth one we have is uh, many translated respectable. If you've got the ESV, it translated respectable. Um, and what's interesting about that word uh, is that it's, it's, it's cos- cosmion. You can probably hear the connection not only of cosmetics, but like cosmology, the cosmos, right? And it gets the gets the idea that you're an ordered person, right? You're you're not just put together, you know, externally, right? You don't just know how to put together a mean suit, right? But you're 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 ordered insofar as you know you're you're a diligent husband and father, you're a hard worker, right? You're ordered you're ordered in such a way that when people look at you, they respect you, right? And you know. Sometimes you see a guy who's well put together, like, man, I respect that guy. And then you get to know him, like, I do not respect that guy. Never mind. And Paul is trying to get at the fact that it's not just an external thing, right? It's not just, um, not just the suit and the tie, but it's the man behind it. Um, not only that, and this is one that you know, is such a challenge for me because it's so easy to kind of push this one aside. It's just not my character trait, right? But hospitable, being hospitable. Are the elders that would be people who welcome in the stranger. And, you know, the, I'm sure you've heard this before from John, but, you know, that word hospitable, the, the way it literally translates is lover to aliens, right? Love, or, you know, lover of strangers, not like, you know, green men and flying saucers, but lovers to strangers, right? People who opened up their homes to the, the traveler and the weird, and especially, you know, in the first century, you know, when bandits roamed, when, you know, who, you never knew who you were opening your home to. Right? And yet, elders, leaders in the church were those who were marked by constantly opening up their home. And this, you know, it wasn't just Christians who said this. I mean, the, the Greeks had this huge idea of hospitality as well. But theirs wasn't necessarily rooted in you're caring for the lowest. Theirs was, you know, they had a story that Zeus and Hermes came down and took human form. And they tried all these houses and no one let, would let them in. And the, the one house that he did let in, he like blessed him tremendously. He became a king and all this stuff. And so... You know, the Greeks were hospitable because you never know when you're going to be hospitable to Zeus and Hermes and maybe get blessed beyond your wildest dreams. And yet Paul is telling us to be hospitable because that's, Christ was ultimately hospitable to us. Right? He came and took on our form and, and brought us in to his own fold. Um, and then uh, the, 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 one of the last positives that he gives right, is able to teach. Able to teach. And this gets at sort of the we're going to see in a, a little bit the way he talks about some of the, the functions of an elder. But this gets at, you know, if one side of an elder is administrative, handling the business of the church, just as a key part of it is teaching. Right now, Paul will talk about 
Some some elders are worthy of double honor, those who uh, devote themselves to preaching and teaching. So, you know, there are teaching elders like Pastor John and myself that um, are uh, feel a particular giftedness in teaching, and so that's what we are committed to full-time. But really, all elders have should have some sort of teaching. It may not necessarily be, you know, behind a podium or anything, teaching gift, but just the act of discipling, right? discipling people in the faith. That should be a part of the, the, the gifting that God has given an elder. Um, and this is kind of <clears throat> strengthened even in 1 Timothy 1.9, as Paul gives the, the, the qualifications for an elder there. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it, right? So the reason elders, bishops, overseers need to be gifted in teaching isn't necessarily to show off their smarts or anything, but it's to protect the sheep, right? To build the sheep up and to protect them from false teaching, right? To protect them from uh, external, the wolves that come in and try to pull them away. Um, And this is why, you know, for as, as wonderful as there are, I mean, the Lord brings all sorts of people to churches. And yet, in the PCA, we require that officers adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? It's not saying that, we're not saying, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. But, you know, as elders, as leaders of the church, we need to be unified around what we believe. And this church has said the Westminster Confession is the most accurate teaching, right? We are, are unified around what we teach and how we teach. Um, and so he goes on, right? He gives, after giving these six positive attributes, he then quickly gives um, three negative and one, um, one more positive. Or no, am I getting my math wrong? Four negatives, I'm sorry, four negatives. So he's not a drunkard, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And these sort of all sort of speak for themselves, but, you know, an elder is not one that, you know, he's not the town drunk. Right? He's not that, you know, that man is, is, is welcome to, to worship and participate. You know, he is, we, we in no way cast him out of the church. But as far as leadership goes, right, the, those men who cannot control themselves around alcohol, right, are, prove themselves to be unqualified, disqualified even, I guess, for, to the role of elder. Um, and then, uh, you know, not, uh, not quarreling, right? Is he a pugnacious man, right? Uh, not violent. Um, and then, last one, not a lover of money. And he'll repeat this same one in the deacons, but it seems like the false teachers that had kind of started to take over the church in Ephesus, right? They were, all their teaching was centered around how much money can we get from these people, right? And, and time and again, the, all throughout the Old Testament, right, the, the sign of a false shepherd of a wolf in sheep's clothing is that in, in Jeremiah it describes it like they, they, they don't care for the sheep. In fact, they devour the sheep, right? That false shepherds devour the sheep. Uh, and they have, has this picture of, in Jeremiah of, you know, the false shepherd, the good shepherd leads his sheep to water and steps back and lets them, lets them water. But the bad shepherd, the false shepherd, you know, pushes the sheep out of the way, walks through the clean water, gets it muddy so that he can go to the clean water. And leaves the dirty water for the sheep. Right? That a false shepherd is only concerned about what financial gain can I get from these people. And Paul is trying to tell us if uh, the, the 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 leaders of God's church, not that they, you know, 
some, of the, some, some elders that I've met have been the wealthiest people I have ever known in my life, right? So it's not saying no rich people, but are they only concerned with what's happening to their wallet? And if that's what they're always talking about, where they're always going to, then the office of elder is not for them. Um, but after giving these qualifications, right, he gives sort of three tests. He gives sort of three tests. Here are some things, just some general guidelines to, be, to, to think about as you're, as you're walking through the, 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 the men in your church. Right? And the first is, uh, we kind of sum up, right? How does he govern his household? Is he a new believer? And how do outsiders think about him? Right? So first, governing household. And here we sort of see the, um, the Paul hinting at the, the role, what it looked like to be an elder, right? to be an overseer. Because he uses uh, three different words, or two different words, twice. He uses the same word twice. There we go. He uses the same word twice in verse... Um, sorry, I've lost my spot here. Um, verse, verses four through four through five, right? So he must manage his own household well with all dignity, right? Manage. So you've got this, this idea of managing. And he repeats that, that, that word again in verse five. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household. Right? So you've got this idea of managing, right? So the office of elder, you know, we, we do concern ourselves with, you know, strictly, quote unquote, secular matters in the church, I guess secular matters is the wrong word. But, you know, physical matters, like not necessarily spiritual things. So the BCO, uh, just I looked at the BCO of what the session does, kind of gave some of the, 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 the administrative side of things, right? So they approve the budget. The session approves the budget. The uh, session approves actions affecting church property. property. The, they call, call congregational meetings, right? The the session determines, hey, when's the best time to have worship? Is it 9.30 or 10.15 or, you know, how are we going to do that? Um, they carry out lawful injunctions of the courts, of the General Assembly, right? So they, there, there is an administrative side of the, the session of an elder. Um, and, uh, and we notice, too, that even though he uses the example of children, right, this, is, this really exceeds when he says he will uh, manage his own household well, with all dignity, it exceeds just parenting and husbandry, right? Not raising animals, but, you know, being a husband. And it would, it would extend to, you know, if he's got a business, how does he handle his business, right? If he, if he if, as one commentator put it, it says, um, it would include management of slaves, property, business interests, and even maintenance of important relationships. So, you know, if he's a businessman, does he, is he good at what he does, you know, does he does he handle his you know does his family generally do all right or does he have trouble man- managing the, the finances they come in? Um, but the the chief example that he gives right is keeping his children submissive or obedient, right? Keeping his and the way Titus will say it is um, the, it's it, he used the word piston right. So are his children faithful? And and some people want to push this to the extreme and say if you have a if you're a a man who has an unbelieving child in your household, then you are unfit to, for, for the office. And personally, I don't know if this is disagreeing with the, the session. I apologize. So, but uh, I probably should have asked before I did this. But personally, I don't go, see it going that far. I see it mainly saying, hey, the children in your house, do they, do they listen to you? You know, are they, you know, when you go to bed, are they sneaking out and going to the parties? Or 
Are you able to to control them insofar as you are able as being the the, the father, their father when they're in your household. So it's not saying anything about their spiritual condition, but it is saying how are they managed, right? Because he goes on, he goes sort of a lesser to greater, right? If a man can't even manage his own children, how is he going to manage the church of Christ? How is he going to manage uh, spiritual things for others? But when he does that, he shifts to a new word. I don't know if you caught that, but he, you know, he's talking about managing his household, managing his household again, End of verse, uh, middle of verse 5. But then it says, how will he care for God's church? Right? He shifts that verb. He, it's, a, it's going from a business administrative word to a, a personal word. How will he care? Right? The word is uh, epimolisetai. How will he care for them? And what's interesting, that's a rare word in the New Testament. The only time we see that word is twice in Luke 10, 34 and 35. And that's, anyone know what that is? It's a good Samaritan, right? And the care that the good Samaritan gives to the man and that he asks the innkeeper is this same word, right? To care for them, to provide for them, to nurse their wounds. Uh, one, one commentator says, this change of verb expands the scope of management, right, which might be rather limited to a mechanical view of supervision. So if it was just management, if it was just administration, we just view it as like, you know, Andre being classic Andre. Hey, don't do that. All right, see you later, right? Or Jerry, hey, knock it off. Get out of here. Um, right? This kind of cold, robotic function. But, he says, with this shift of verb, it shifts it to a, include a more compassionate activity. Right? So the elders, your officers, are not just concerned with you know, the, the functioning of the church at a, at a general level, but they're, they are to be concerned in, in your, your lives as well for the sheep. Um, again, going to the, went to the BCO and just pulled out some of the things that the BCO says the, the session is to do, right? It's to inquire into the knowledge, principles, and Christian conduct of the church members under its care. Right? So we are to, to care for you all by, by seeking how you're doing spiritually. You know, how's your family? Right? What, how can we be praying for you? Uh, to promote obedience to the Great Commission in its totality at home and abroad. So the, the elders care for you by, by showing what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Or to determine the best measures for promoting the spiritual interests of the church and congregation. So they're, to, as, you know, our, part of our meetings, not every time, but you know, at our meetings we talk about, hey, what, can, what do we do, what can we do better to, to, to stir Grace PCA to love and to good works? And that's part of the care that we're to give to God's people. Do you have a comment, question? Could you sum that up to say it not being excessive legalistic? Yeah, there's a part of it. Yeah, and, it, and even um, the, the, the word um, gentle earlier that I kind of just glossed over in verse 3, that word gentle has this idea of being um, gracious. To not, one, one dictionary defined it as not insisting on the letter of every law. Right? Um, now, that doesn't mean you know we just throw the law out but there is a graciousness and gentleness in how how we care for people um but just see what paul is painting right it's a picture of the the elders the overseers they they administrate the church right as you know as grace has grown from i don't know 35 people in 1993 to 200 plus people in 2023 right it, it requires administrative efforts Right? We, need, 
We need elders over finance. We need elders over, um, you know, Andre's elder over the deacons. He need, we need elders kind of overseeing the administrative side of things. But elders are also to be pouring themselves into your life, right? To, to be caring for you, to be, to be pursuing you. Um, but also, not a new believer. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly because we're running out of time here. But um, not a new believer, right? Not a new believer. Uh, notice what he says. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil, right? Don't be a, a you know, even the term elder, you kind of get, get a sense that this is not someone who just became a Christian yesterday. Um, but there are people who have walked through the Christian life and have gained experience of what it means to follow Jesus and be a member of his church. Um, and the word used there is uh, tufamai uh, would kind of be the root form. Um, but it it's, means to be blinded, right? to be blinded. And kind of what Paul is getting at is that new, newcomers, they get infatuated and, and blinded in like, man, if I'm a leader, just think of all the great stuff I'll get to be. Right? They sort of get you know, the, the, the glittery gold. I know this looks really good to be a teaching elder. The, and my, the glittery gold of, of office, of an office keeper, right? it, it can seduce them. It can, can, can puff them up to being prideful right? when they're, when they're ill-qualified. Um, and it has that sort of vague sentence there, right? Fall into the condemnation of the devil. And I actually kind of appreciate the ESV for translating that because that's kind of literally what it says. And no one's entirely sure, but... Uh, some of your translations, you've got like an NASB, it might say, fall into the same condemnation of the devil or the same judgment of the devil. And it seems like what he's getting at is, hey, the, the first, the, the sin that made Satan fall was being blinded by his own beauty and being puffed up with conceit. Um, and so as new believers getting blinded by the splendor of the teaching office, right, they'll be, they'll be puffed up with conceit and pride. Um, and then the third kind of test, he says, is he must be well thought of by outsiders, or have a good testimony by outsiders. And this is, you know, especially as our culture becomes more and more fragmented, it's hard to know exactly what this says, because, you know, people that I worked with for years and would count, not necessarily dear friends, but, you know, we worked together for a long time, post horrendous stuff about Christians. And if they realized I was a Christian, like, they would just disown me just because, right? Christian's a hateful, hateful guy. Um, and if only they knew me better, they'd probably see that to be true. But um, it's not. And, but it, you know what? What he's trying to get at is not this. You know, we need to be these people pleasers, getting outsiders to love us. But you know, when your neighbor talks about you, you know, does he say, "Ooh, I can kind of hear him yelling at his wife on Sunday nights," and like, there's a lot of like Paps blue ribbon cans out there, and. Uh, <laughs> I don't really know, right? Um, one, uh, one, one commentator said what Paul is trying to get at is this, um, the complete loss of credibility that comes when unacceptable behavior leads to the damage of one's reputation, right? So basically the idea is you know, pay attention to how neighbors and unbelievers talked about them because man, if, uh, if a church leader falls into grievous sin, it not only ruins his credibility, but it, it, it tarnishes the credibility of the church, too. Right? And notice what he, he assigns it to, right? Falling into disgrace first, but falling into a snare of the devil. Right? And part of the office, as we recognize, right, is that 
Satan is always trying to pull down the officers of the church. Right? If he can make an officer do something stupid, he knows that that just brings the damage that causes to Christ's church. I just heard uh, Brad Eaton told me this yesterday. Some of y'all may have seen the story. The CRC pastor who confessed to killing a little girl 50 years ago. It's like, man, the devil laughs when that happens. Right? The devil cackles knowing I've got another one. Right? Um, so even as we, you know, part of Paul's admonition of, hey, what you're desiring is a good thing. He's building it up with, but here's all the stuff <laughs> you deal with. First and key among those being the snares of the devil. Right? That if you're an officer in the church, you know, the enemy is, you know, he's, you're on his number one watch list. He's always looking for ways that he can, he can tempt you, he can test you, he can poke and prod you. Um, but that's the, that, those are the qualifications for the office of overseer, for the office of elder. Uh, but then Paul also quickly moves to deacons, right? Deacons, and you notice that little word likewise there, right? He's kind of carrying this over. Um, the, 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 really the, the closest verb that this could be referring to is being above reproach. So just like elders are above reproach, deacons should be above reproach. Right? And um, I know, you know it, it's unfortunate this happens sometimes, but sometimes in churches you kind of get the sense of, you know, Deacons are like the peewee league, and elder is like the varsity, you know. Um, and even with this, likewise, Paul is trying to cut aside any of that, right? It's not, you know, the elders are the ultra-spiritual important, and the deacons are just sort of like, eh, a monkey could do that, right? Um, but it's, it's trying to uphold both offices as, as noble callings, right? Noble, worthy things. Two separate callings but both worthy and, and noble callings. Um, and just to, we're just going to kind of run through this, right? But, I mean, deacons, uh, you will know from Acts 6, right? Deacons are to care for the physical needs of the congregation, right? They, they care for the, the widow. And in, in Acts 6, it says you, they cared for widows and table service, right? So providing food, providing shelter to widows, providing care for orphans. Um, and really, you know, if, you know obviously... Both played their key roles, but some of the things, just to encourage even deacons here, right? The, the thing that promulgated Christianity in the darkest of times through human history was the diaconate service of the church, right? It was, it was members going to leper colonies and feeding them when no one else would. It was going into the midst of the plague and, 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 and washing dirty scabs when no one else would that, that, that kind of cemented Christianity as, as it. So, you know, just, just be encouraged, Deacon. Being the, the feet and hands of Christ are, is, a, is a worthy and noble calling. Um, and, uh, you know, much the same, right? We see much of the same attributes. It's not greedy for dishonest gain, uh, not addicted to much wine, not double-tongued, right? Do they, you know, do they talk about you, you know, you're laughing it up, chumming it up, and then the next day, you know, Jim comes over and is like, hey, Pete was really bashing on you yesterday. Like, he hates you, apparently. Um, do they do that? Hopefully not. Um, and then notice, too, even though the deacons are a primarily physical office, holding to concern with physical needs, notice what it says in verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Right? They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Meaning, 
we should just be as just concerned about what our our our, our deacons are believing as our elders. Right? These deacons still had they still have spiritual authority in the church, and you know, again, going back to the the BCOs. Requirements, you know, it's not just elders that have to abide by the Westminster Confession of Faith, but it's the deacons too. The deacons, you know, sign their name to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Obviously, you know, I take exceptions. We 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 allow exceptions, so it's not like you got to agree to every word, buddy. But um, but there is still a concern about what these deacons are believing, what they're what they're holding to be true. Um, and um. Uh, whew, I thought the, the, the last trump was sounding. Um, <laughs> um, but it's a good test to know how spiritually mature you are. If it scares you. <laughs> um, but notice, uh, notice what he says, right? So um, in, he, kinda, he, he says it plainly here, but it's hinted at in verse 2, right? Um, in verse 10, he says, let them be tested first. Let deacons be tested first. Um, and he, he, he kind of carries that over from the elders where it says, therefore, an, uh, an elder, an overseer, must be above reproach. So notice that testing is a part of this, right? Examining, um, not just theological examinations, but um, examination of their life, right? Not saying we have to give an audit of our whole day-to-day when you, when you come up for office, but you know, examine someone's life. Let the, let the deacons be examined first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless, right? So we're, it's not just, I want to be a deacon. Hey, great, hop on in, right? Or I want to be an elder. Hey, good on you, let's go, right? But it's examination. It's do they meet these qualifications? Um, and then verse 11, um, this is uh, kind of a, not a, it's kind of naughty. It's, um, there are many different ways for interpreting it. So ESV, uh, does anyone have an NIV in here? Does anyone have, say, women or deaconesses? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Verse 11. Okay, that's surprising. Good on the NIV. I thought the New American Standard says women must likewise be Oh, yeah. I forgot the NAS does say women. So, yeah, the, 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 the word gunaikos there, it can be translated both women, woman, or wife. Um, and so it's hard to know... Um, you know, there's sort of three different ways you can interpret this. Some denominations, um, like the ARP, um, the EPC, a few others, uh, like so conservative. I'm just kind of listing conservative Bible believing. Um, they would say they would give room for deaconesses, right? So ordained deaconesses, and that's what this verse is talking about. Um, some hold it. The, my personal view is it's either talking about um, women assistants to deacons or the wives of deacons, as, as the ESV translates it. Um, and there's a bunch of different reasons, but um, mainly because if you have, because words were kind of semantically flexible in Greek much more than they are today, uh, when you have one word used one way and then the same word used just a couple seconds later, they're probably being used in the same the same way. And so, the you know, verse 11 has gunaikos, and then the very next verse, verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one gunaikos, right? So um, I, am, I think there's a place, and even our BCO allows for the deacons to, um, to bring on women as, as, as helpers in that, and, and really 
admonishes and exhorts women and men alike too to 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 help the deacons and sirs and many of y'all do right to with meal trains and, and caring for people but reserving the office of deacon as as one that has spiritual authority kind of going off our, our teaching last week um is reserved reserved solely for males um that one's a little like i said that one's a little bit more debated just because there are good conservative you know most people that push for full um, inclusion and the role of teaching elder generally are on the other side of the theological aisle but there are good denominations conservative evangelical denominations that um, read verse 11 a little, little differently so just recognizing my own personal view is it's either talking about the wives the deacons or women assistants to the deacons but not no, necessarily no uh, ordination yeah not or, not an ordained deaconess yeah exactly um, but notice, you know, that even if it is talking about wives, again, that kind of showing the, the, the one flesh nature, like when a, when a man becomes a deacon, right, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's a calling for his whole family, right, that, that women, that they're wives too, like, if your wife doesn't think your family's in a place where you should be an officer, well, maybe that's the Lord telling you, like, it's not her just trying to get you down, right, submit to me probably not the wisest right if, if your wife's not on board uh that that is maybe one one way the lord may be saying not right now um and uh, all right so again the same test for managing households um and then um just last thing let's just ending it sort of bring it back full circle right if the office of overseer is a noble task right um one for the spiritual administration and edification of the church Right, listen to how he ends with the deacons. For those who serve well as deacons, not only gain a good standing for themselves, but also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Right, so again, just encouraging the men to, to what kind of office they're, they're, they're shooting for. It's a noble thing that gives good standing and great confidence. Um, so we are we got 10 minutes till we're done. I figure we'll pray. But any questions about any of that? Yeah, Carol. Why do you think the specificity is only for the wives and the and not Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I think, so she said, why the specificity for um, deacons' wives? And why, why didn't Paul have the same thing back in verses 1 through 7? Um, I'm going to say I am not entirely sure I have an answer for you on that. I would imagine, you know, this is all sorts of, I mean, I think part of it is that is, like that word likewise it has some like it's it's sort of making an equal sign so some of the things he says about deacons and elders are sort of you know passed back and forth but also i think there may there 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 could be something particularly um physically demanding about the deacons that would require their wives to be of more help at that time you know, and, and with what they do. Does that make sense? Does that, does that answer your question? All right. He says it's in the same age as the women. Yeah. So he's, he's assuming all the women, the elders, the deacons, wives, everything. Yeah, well, that's a good point, too. Yeah, so he doesn't necessarily say, you know, my, my translation says their wives, meaning their deacons' wives, but you could just say women. It could be referring to elders' wives as well. And I guess, too, and just a point, I meant to make this point, but... Um, now, while Paul is kind of showing this is what the qualifications are for elder and deacon, right, he's also kind of painting, this is what every man and woman should aspire to, right? It's not just, you know, let the really holy ones do this, but every, every in fact, you know, as I'm doing marriage counseling with a couple, 
you know, I'm having them read this passage. Like, what kind of man are you aspiring to be? Is it, you know, someone who just floats by? Or, I mean, because God calls each man to, to be respectable, you know, orderly. Um, we should all desire, all desire the greater gifts, as Paul says. Um, so, uh, any other questions? I think I saw one more hand. Yeah. So, is it saying that for some, I mean, obviously in the Catholic faith, it didn't take it this way. But is it saying that there's somebody to be an elder and a deacon, they have to be married and they have to have children? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I, th- there, some people do read that that way. Obviously not the Catholics. But um, they, um, yeah, I do not think, I think it's saying if he is, it's sort of an if he is married, let him be the husband. Because I think, especially in this time, polygamy, while it wouldn't have necessarily been like, and infidelity, but also polygamy, while it wouldn't have been like, you know, we're not in Utah, but we are like, <laughs> It wouldn't wouldn't have been necessarily socially unacceptable for to to be a polygamist, and so that's also one thing he's addressing too. So, but good question. Yeah, you don't have to necessarily be married. Yeah. Would it possibly be too also that the deacons' wives are more likely going to be an active part of the ministry that they're doing, whereas the uh, an elders more <coughs> over? Yeah, yeah. That's that. That was kind of that's a better way to say what I tried to say. Yeah, that. As far as why he didn't have that same sentence in the prior section is the elders' wives they will be part of running the church, where the deacons' wives are usually right hand in hand. With yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point. Women are much more sensitive. Yeah, they are. And so therefore, yeah, you need to get their counsel. Mm-hmm. Women are more sensitive. Bud said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right. Um, Well, that should probably wrap us up. Um, Let's move on to to progress. Again, as always, if you have any questions about this, um, feel free to email me. Stop by my office. We'd love to talk more. I know there's a a lot of things we could talk about on this.